In January 2017, amid nationwide response to the inauguration of President Donald Trump, many major cities and even smaller towns saw resistance gatherings in the form of women's marches, focusing on issues of sexism at the national level. While most chose to align themselves with the National Women's March organization, Ypsilanti, as it often does, did things a little differently. On Friday and Saturday, January 20th and 21st of 2017, an organization known as El Rey, or Love Resilience Action Ypsilanti, held a two-day event which focused on community building and resistance, as well as issues of sexism, racism, classism, and homophobia. They also held a march in January of 2018, with a chief focus on issues of gentrification in the local community. This episode features an interview with the organizers of the marches, along with sounds of the marches sprinkled within. I had the opportunity to speak with Dr. Beth Currens, Ms. Desiree Simmons, and Dr. Mariah Zeisberg about their involvement in and memories of these historic local events. Enjoy! Hi there. My name is Shoshana, and I'm a librarian at the Ypsilanti District Library. Welcome to the library's podcast, Ipsy Stories. Ipsy Stories is a podcast about the history of Ypsilanti told in story form by historians, academics, community members, and local experts. This podcast seeks to unearth stories and perspectives that may be new to you and are often unheard. Our hope is that by listening to these episodes, you'll gain better understanding of our collective past, present, and future. views expressed by each guest are their own and do not represent the views of the library. Dr. Beth Kearns is Associate Professor and Interim Department Head of Women's and Gender Studies at Eastern Michigan University. Ms. Desiree Simmons is Co-Director of the Interfaith Council for Peace and Justice. Dr. Mariah Zeisberg is Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Michigan. This episode will sound a little different from previous episodes as we recorded this interview over Zoom. Dr. Kearns acted as the interviewer. Hers is the first voice you'll hear. The next voice you'll hear is that of Dr. Zeisberg. The third voice you'll hear is that of Ms. Simmons. I chiefly functioned as producer and engineer for this episode. Let's have a listen. Oh my god. You're so tiny. You're just like looking like you're like <laughs> on their back. <laughs> All right then. So I'll just work from the questions I sent via email a couple days ago. And you know, we don't need to stay on script. We can go wherever we go. So I may not ask them all or I may come back to them all. We'll see. And then the, so the first one was 
please explain what El Rey is or was. And I think, I don't know, I think that question, the is or was, is part of the conversation. Okay, I don't mind going first. Hello, it's good to see y'all. So El Rey was a vision of being together in order to support each other and to take care of our mental health and to create the grounds for surviving the next four years of the Trump presidency. I think Desiree and I were both crushed and we were imagining Inauguration Day and imagining just the horror of that. And so we got together and talked and said, wouldn't it be good if we had some kind of event to have a positive focal point for Inauguration Day? I feel like you missed out like such an important big part of that, which was that we were both pregnant. I th- you know, we met, it was, you know, in the fall, you know, so, you know, after the election and then, you know, we were like, oh goodness, we're not going to be traveling to Washington, D.C. <laughs> in January. <laughs> and so I think that was such a big part of like why we wanted to do something and call folks together because we want something local because that's what felt like we could do. And because that's when um, our babies were being born. Yes. I remember very clearly having this feeling of like, we want to feel the people in our community who our babies are going to be scaffolding off of. We want to be connected to our people here in our community. Yeah. So I think that's such an important part. And then when we started pulling folks together, we didn't quite know exactly what it would look like. And I know we could talk a little bit about how we even came up with the name too because we were both connecting to this big mobilization that was happening around the women's marches, you know, in DC and elsewhere. But we also were very intentionally having a branching off of that and wanted something that was a little bit more different. And I was thinking about this. So I was trying to remember what were some of those reasons it wasn't about politics, but it was very political and feeling that as a part of the separation and wanting it to be steeped in a vision for what we wanted to see, right? Because the future we want for ourselves and our children and our community, but then also recognizing that we have the resilience, we have the history that shows that we've done it before and that we can do it again and that we can protect ourselves and protect one another and that it was about being in action, right? So I feel like it just kind of came together in all these beautiful ways. I remember sitting on your couch in Michigan, December, cold, with our huge bellies and talking about this. And I remember saying, maybe we could have a thousand people. And Desiree said, we don't need to get all hung up on numbers or how many people we're doing this for ourselves and our community. We need to be thinking, you know, micro and we don't need to have big performance expectations. We're just doing this for ourselves. And I just remember that conversation. Well, the day of <laughs> remembering that conversation. But yeah, that, those were some really good conversations. It was really good to feel connected to you in that moment, Desiree. That was a that was a scary moment. I think another piece was, um, you know, wanting to focus on the neighborhoods in Ypsilanti's own history was that we both saw that this assault was not new in American history. 
and that what Trump represented was not some new phenomenon or experience that had never been encountered before. And we really wanted to draw on the fact that so many people around the country and the world, but specifically in Ypsilanti, so many people have developed so many creative resources and connections and alliances and forms of solidarity and forms of taking care of each other in their neighborhoods for generations. And that we can take hope and refuge in that fact and in that human capacity. So the name Elray came from the meetings, right? When we actually started meeting together as a large group. Yeah, I was actually, I was looking, I was going back to the notes, y'all. So <laughs> I'm like looking at them right now because I was trying to see like, where is this, what we kind of talked about? And I'm just, I'm on a uh, meeting notes from December 4th. <laughs> and, you know, I'm looking at um, who we are and messaging that we had for that. And so just a couple of different things. So we have our politics is about the respect for basic human rights. That's not political, but it has become political. Importance of being clear in our messaging that this is not a unity march with Trump. We are opposed to Trump and we see what is happening in the most serious terms. Grassroots outside of political party still has a politics that is political, community building, progressive we are celebrating our strengths and our struggle, and we want an alternative to the politics of that. How do we turn our grief into action? Grieve the power of domination, resist the new administration, create new alternatives for ourselves and our neighbors, celebrate our strengths and our community, act to create and transform and celebration of our neighbors and then we talked a lot about feminist sibles <laughs> one of our earlier meetings I don't know if we had the name at that meeting but those are the first you know I'm remembering that, I, that meeting now as you're reading it we did not have the name we were shooting out ideas and thoughts and resonances of what brought us there as a basis for generating the name together at that point I think there were maybe like 15 people I also remember that meeting because I said, we're against corruption and Russian incursions into American democracy. And I remember this big groan. <laughs> like, Mariah, we're not, <laughs> one person said, we're not talking conspiracy theories. And I have really held that with me for the past four years. Like, I would love to go back to that meeting. Do y'all see what I was talking about, man? The Russians are all over this. <laughs> All right, political scientists. All right. <laughs> um, so we've talked a bit about the name and kind of why you all were wanting to organize, but kind of what was it like? What was this thing that you organized? As I remember it, we wanted to be together. We wanted to take refuge in this past. And then I remember this being a very, like, what was going to be the form of that togetherness? I remember what's the focal point. I remember that all being something that really emerged from group discussions. So it's hard to follow the thread necessarily. Yeah, I remember that. I'm trying to remember at what point we decided it was going to be a two-day event. Because we can't just do one event because that's what people do. We were like, oh, you know, let's make this a multi-day event. Because we felt that there was multiple things that needed to happen that couldn't just happen all at once. And so 
kind of breaking it into a two-day and starting with the Friday where we wanted to have space where people would be able to like grieve but feel like together where we would do signs. We wanted to have resources to say like, we got this, but feel your feelings. And then wanting to then have the march, which would have a different kind of feel where it was going to have all this energy of this history. And that, you know, when you're talking about numbers, you just talked about like that first conversation, you know, we had all the way down, it got from a thousand all the way down to like 200. I was like, come on, y'all. Like, I remember like, <laughs> David's like, yeah, we can get like 250, you know, and we we're like, okay. I was like, I feel like we could get maybe more than like, you know, just our neighbors. <laughs> So then we were like planning, you know, we had this whole route that was around and we were going to have all these stops and we were going to have this whole conversation with our bullhorns. <laughs> and there was this amazing zine that gave all this history of like each space that we were going to go through. And, you know, we come up, you know, I remember, oh my gosh, I remember the day of being downstairs, uh, Bonacera, and just gathering things and being like, okay, are there people outside yet? I don't know. Like nobody came downstairs to get hot cocoa. <laughs> I was like, okay, well, we'll see whatever. We're going to go upstairs. And I remember coming outside. <laughs> and I was like, oh, oh. there was like a <laughs> this wall of people. We have a nonviolent statement of attention hanging up in Bonacera. And we expect marchers to treat each other with respect. And I was like, oh, are they going to be able to hear us? <laughs> and I was supposed to be setting the pace. Because <laughs> we were like, oh, this is going to be really great. You know, we'll have a pregnant woman help set the pace. So that way we won't go too fast. And <laughs> I was like, go ahead, y'all. <laughs> that was just amazing. You know, it was great to have the zines printed up so people could learn that history. But you know, I remember that first stop, it was like, this isn't going to work. There's too many people. And, you know, we had to change the route anyway, because there was a funeral going on. So we wanted, we were like, we can't bring all these people down. So some of the crew that was marshalling us was just great and made a <laughs> adjustment. Well, we've never specifically said what Elright actually stands for is Love, Resilience, Action, Ypsilanti. And that came out of the kind of brainstorming sessions among, you know, the core group of 10 to 15. And then the set, like as you were going through Desiree, like each of the different components of it, in my recollection, that was all because different people had energy for really different aspects. And we were like, let's just do it all. Let's just whatever someone has energy for, let's do it. And it was really beautiful to see that play out. I remember I wasn't on the zine committee, but I remember just the day they showed up with the zine and all this amazing art and all this history and what they put together was just amazing. And I think the process for us as a group of different folks working on what they really cared about and what they were motivated towards formed us as individual people. And we've learned about each other and we learned about Ypsilanti and we learned about our own history. And then in the moment when it was like, oh, there's definitely over a thousand people here. In fact, this is a whole different event than what we had imagined. But I remember seeing Beth yelling out history from a bullhorn and I was doing the same. Like, I felt like people were like, okay, what have we got? Let's just get it out there however we can. And I felt that we had learned so much and grown together that we were able to offer something to the event as it actually was, as opposed to kind of what we had been imagining that it would be. We were just able to more chaotically throw in what we'd learned about our community. 
just to kind of sum up, LRAY stands for Love Resilience Action Ypsilanti. And it kind of, it was an event, but it was also the organization came to be named that, right? It's who we were as a group. And initially what we were planning for January of 2017 turned out to be a two-day event. We gathered the evening before to make signs and, you know, there was music and spoken word poetry and like just a community gathering where we could be there. And a lot of the people who were there, if I recall correctly, were people who actually went to the Ann Arbor March, but came and hung out with us the night before to make signs. We had a childcare area, which I thought was really beautiful. And Nola did the childcare. I think she spearheaded that. Nola! <laughs> you know, and then the next day we gathered to march and we're expecting 250 people. We had 250 zines. And then there was like 1,200 people. <laughs> and we marched. And then afterwards, a couple people gave speeches, but I remember Mariah's in particular. And then we had a resource sharing event at the end. We are so grateful for the example that our ancestors and neighbors have shared with us. We take inspiration from that power. We need that power right now. We have history in this town. And what we invite you to do, the Love, Resilience, and Action Steering Committee, we invite you to participate in that history, to carry that legacy forward, to join with others, and to work hard to create a world that we actually want to live in. And so you talked a little bit about how this happened, but I'd like to hear more about how the two of you decided that you too wanted to try to organize something and then brought the rest of us in. You know, it's actually like this beautiful community story, too. And I know, too, as we've been talking about, we did that March that first year, but then we also did another event the second year, too. But Mariah and I actually, we knew some, like, folks. So I feel like the first time we really talked was at this event that Yodit was hosting and was pulling together folks to think about, like, politics. And I think that that's where we really got to talking. And, you know, we met there. And then I think, you know, after that, then Mariah reached out. And it was kind of like, oh, I just feel this, like, <laughs> I don't know, this, like, urge or something to, you know, whatever. And then that's when we started having those conversations laid out on the couch. <laughs> I remember, like, pulling out my pull-out couch bed. And we just were, like, laid up on <laughs> the pull-out couch just try to think like, what could this be? And who could we invite to talk about it? And like, hoping that people would be excited, like, because, you know, obviously, we knew it was going to take a lot of energy to kind of get it going. But yeah, it was just, it felt like so like these just conversations that then grew to beyond what we even imagined it could be, you know? Yeah. And then we just started reaching out to other friends or people in the community who we knew and things snowballed one direction or another. It was a tight timeline. So I think if I were to think about creating an organizing committee, there's probably different ways I would think of that as a formal process. But this was just, let's move, let's get things going. And also, I think it was like the space. So the meetings we had, we were, I was just talking about, like, I had to get my tea because I was like, oh, you know, feel like that was such an important part of our meetings was just the comfort of the food and the warmth and we were like in your living room mm -hmm. <laughs> you know it was just so homey too in that sense but then also that 
space became something to look forward to for me, I know. And yeah, and I think that that, that go, went into that where people were able to be like, oh, this is what I really want to bring into this space. And it was like, all of it was welcome. Water Dog made chai every week for our meetings and somebody usually had snacks of some kind. People would bring different delicious things. And now I'm remembering that I was really, I was not just pregnant, but I was on bed rest. I had a certain number of hours per day. I was allowed to even be standing. So I remember some of that homey atmosphere was kind of driven by some really specific biological <laughs> needs, but it was wonderful. It was wonderful to share that space with you all. And for me, that was part of what made it such a feminist space. I mean, the focus was certainly feminist, but I also, you know, going there and like, and I didn't know either of you. I got the email from someone who didn't end up actually being an active part of the organizing committee. Um, so I walked into this space and I kind of knew one person in the room, right? But it was a really welcoming space and, and being in, it's been a long time since I organized in someone's home. Like I did that as a grad student, but I hadn't really done it since. And yeah, and the, all the care, like there was always chai on the stove and there was always some kind of snacks. And sometimes that was just a couple of things. But I remember one of the early meetings, Desiree showing up with like mac and cheese right out of the oven, so hot, you know? So there was like this space of us bringing our full selves to that space. And, you know, if we were going to be there for a couple of hours, we did need to be at Mariah's house because that's what Mariah needed. But, you know, the rest of us showing up on cold days and, you know, warming ourselves and, you know, you know, spending that time thinking through what we wanted to do. So you also kind of talked about this a little bit, I think maybe a little bit more sharp focus on how this January 2017 march related to the National Women's Marches. Well, there were a lot of different perspectives and attitudes about that on the committee itself. So for some people, this was very much connected to the Women's March and connected to a need for a feminist moment and feminist response. I think for me, it was less specifically connected to the Women's March for a variety of reasons. But obviously, that was a touchstone because that was kind of a major national level response was the Women's March. I remember like conversations about whether we should identify with the Women's March. And I loved that conversation. There were all the questions about race and trans inclusivity and kind of traditional questions around when white women, which I, I know the leadership structure changed of the Women's March. So I think they themselves were going through a long process. But at the beginning, when white women leading things, there's just certain questions that come up and processes to have. But as I remember, a deciding point for us that we weren't going to explicitly affiliate with the Women's March was when they had a no alcohol and drugs pledge. And part of our route was the tap room. And one of the conversations we were going to be having was about the role of bars in queer and LGBT resilience. And we certainly weren't going to be telling people not to be self-intoxicating on Inauguration Day if that's what they wanted to be doing. So it was interesting because it was an interesting place to part ways. I remember that moment too. And I remember thinking, do we really want to be having to be held to that? Like, I don't. And we're trying not to be working with the police. Like that was a whole, I remember that conversation about getting a permit, not getting a permit, working with the police, not getting, you know. And that's one of the things I really appreciated about the space too, because it was really this organizing conversation where people were bringing these different kind of understandings and groundings into it too. But yeah, I remember that conversation and it was like, that just felt like this is not something that we want to do. We were on the same day. Well, the day was Inauguration Day. 
We're thinking about resistance to white supremacy. We're thinking about labor politics. We're thinking about um, LGBT and queer politics. We're thinking about like, and especially in the March that we did the following year, we're thinking about gentrification and access to housing and to the kinds of communities that we want to see and what kinds of zoning and housing policies those require. So obviously as feminists, I think each of us was looking at those questions through a feminist lens, but it wasn't simply about the assault on women. It was about so much more. Well, I think we were naming like the different groups that we thought would be under assault with the policies that were going to be coming. And it's interesting to kind of look back and think how some people might have thought that we were (laughs) being dramatic. (laughs) And we found out so quickly that no, actually, all of these groups were facing assault and have and continue to currently still. And so that was something that I thought was really beautiful, but it was a lot of learning of a lot of different groups and things that I hadn't personally thought about within organizing, but that has stuck with me, like really thinking about disability justice and thinking about how that comes into organizing spaces and what that means to create a space and how you have to think of the route and think of the time. You know, and a lot of those things that we spent a lot of time really parsing through, and that's something I also really appreciated about that space, because we were trying to bring together all these important issues, because we knew that a lot of times, too, we all get so separated, but that this was something that we saw a need to bring us together, that we needed that solidarity because it could get lonely, but we knew that we were all going to be suffering. So I thought that that was something that was really important for us. Yeah, I think back to something that someone said earlier, one of the things that was really powerful for me was times that we were really trying to figure out how to bring together what we might call kind of the liberal and the more radical parts of our community. And that question of police involvement for me was a really key point people who didn't want the police involved in any way and others who just wanted to figure out how to keep them from bothering us and those different kinds of approaches. And for me, that was, I think, one of the most powerful things was when we were thinking through that stuff. And I think in the end, quite successfully, and in part, that's because we were willing to hear each other. Next thing I was wondering if you'd talk a bit about is why there was this decision to focus on local social justice history. So for me, it's connected to my life position at the moment, this pregnancy and birthing a child where he would be growing up in a neighborhood. He's growing up in a very specific place. Also, Matt Siegfried has made so much information available to our community and has been working so hard to transmit this information. And I know that so many of us have taken strength and inspiration and humility from what he's documented. So we had direct access to bringing an incredibly engaging and exciting um, focus access point to our local history. Everybody here and our ancestors fought for basic rights, basic dignities. They had to struggle for them. They had to wrench them out of the hands of the powerful. They had to demand them, and they had to disrupt. They had to shut down when uh, the activities threatened them. They had to threaten back, right? right? They had to wage a fight because a fight was being waged against them. We are now in the same situation. I mean, we have people who have done this legwork already, so we didn't need to research all of Ypsilanti's history under various supremacy and domination systems. We had someone who's just really shown up for the community and provided that all along. So 
for me personally, there was an intersection between where I was motivated as a person who was becoming a parent and also strengths and resources that already existed. I think there are four different things for me. One is that I moved to Ipsy at the very end of 2014. And so I think about that this was really one of those things that really kind of brought me out and brought me into the community. And this is such a great opportunity to learn deeply and to jump right into what makes Ipsy Ipsy in an interesting way. And so I think I was really attracted to that and feeling that that was something I needed to do because I wanted that for my child. And then I think the other thing, so this was before we were doing this planning before Emergent Strategy came out, but I guess it must have been in the air, but I know I really got pulled into this Emergent Strategy by Adrienne Marie Brown and thinking about this local fractal so it's interesting to hear, you know, when Mariah earlier was talking about how it's like, this is for us. And <laughs> it's just so interesting to kind of go back to that, because I think focusing on it from only what happens at the national level, it wasn't working. The strategy wasn't working because it got us Trump. So it was obviously a failure or maybe not so much a failure, but to get to where we need to go, we needed to do something different. And so I think for me, it was really that it's about our relationship. And it's about understanding what's happening around us because it's the people around us that are voting. And people were so thrown. And I just was like, how are y'all thrown? You're talking about this is your family. Did you not talk to your family? Right? You didn't know? So I think that that's part of it. For me, it was like about these relationships we have. It's about the places we live and understanding what that looks like. And that if we can get to that place, that that's going to help us actually build for the bigger changes that we need to get to. I want to add on to that because I remember one of my thought processes being that the route to authoritarian consolidation is for people to be isolated, suffering, dissociated, traumatized, unable to connect. And that's how people get habituated into alienating our power. And so overcoming that and also tending to the fact that we were going to have major mental health struggles in the next four years. Like we know as a community, we already do have mental health struggles because we're human and we're vulnerable and, and we're in a system that treats people cruelly. But we also expected that it was going to get so much worse. And it's your neighbors who show up and bring us the little cough syrup when we're sick. And it's our neighbors who leave us the sweet little book at our doorstep because there's an idea in there that reminds us of a conversation. It's our neighbors who, on a very immediate level, help us stay healthy and help us stay connected. And so having a focal point, which is about neighbors seeing neighbors, us getting to know who our neighbors even are, and us deepening our connections with each other so that we would be available to help take care of each other for the next four years. So how did the 2018 March relate to the vision from 2017? So I think that one of the pieces was thinking about, as we thought about what was happening locally, we were really diving into like, what is the conversation going on here? Gentrification and the housing crisis were so huge. And also just thinking about the African-American population on the south side of Ypsilanti Thank you for being here this morning! A year ago, we were here because we were upset 
because we knew what was going to happen. Yet we can still come together to appreciate the best that is within us, to connect with one another, and to mobilize for action. We are here today because we know what happens when we act locally. We're talking about gentrification. We're talking about creating feminist spaces. We're talking about voter mobilization. All of these things are connected. We know that what happens on the national and state level impacts us here in Ypsilanti. I think it was dialing into that moment and thinking about what was something that we felt we could really focus in on. Gentrification is the opposite of what inspired our LRA contact with each other. I mean, gentrification means erasing local histories, erasing local connections, disregard for neighbors and for communities that have been formed, and replacing them with a national, capitalist, much more conformist set of economic options and cultural artifacts. It's gentrification that threatens the ability of Ypsilanti to continue to offer sites for taking inspiration in our own specific history. It's that kind of determination, that kind of resilience, that kind of love for one another that we want to take inspiration by and that we want to know about our neighbors to understand that Ypsilanti has this power and that we need to stay connected to that power if we want to resist what's happening in our national politics. Conceptually, it's totally the opposite of where we were coming from in 2016. And then, yeah, practically, like Des just said, this is what's happening in Ypsilanti right now. We're experiencing gentrification. We're experiencing housing dislocation, and that needs to be addressed. I also really appreciated how for this next one, thinking about the different speakers we had and how it changed the stops that we made. And also in this moment, too, with Water Street also kind of starting to lift back up again. And that was one of our stops for the second year. But yeah, I'm thinking about Brian Foley's vote for that. I was just getting to know the role that Brian plays in the community, especially on the South Side. We had someone who was directly impacted by being houseless be able to speak to. I think that was something, too. It was about the lived experience of folks. It wasn't about being this polished (laughs) kind of show, right? It was really about who we are as a community. And then there was an event afterwards that EOD facilitated asking us to imagine our futures, imagine us imagine where we wanted to go and to create connections with one another to reinforce our ability to act together. I remember the children running around at Riverside. (laughs) That was beautiful. For this episode, we'd like to give an extra special thank you to Ypsilanti-based filmmaker Donald Harrison for lending audio from his short films covering the marches. A special thank you to local musician Annie Palmer for providing music for this podcast. You can check out more of her music at anniepalmermusic.bandcamp.com. Thank you so much for listening to Ipsy Stories. If you liked what you heard today, please consider subscribing and telling your friends and neighbors about this podcast. You can subscribe to Ipsy Stories wherever you find your podcasts.
You can also explore previous episodes with additional resources at ipsylibrary.org slash ipsystories. If you have ideas or story suggestions, you can get in touch with me at shoshana at ipsylibrary.org. That's S-H-O-S-H-A-N-N-A at Y-P-S-I-L-I-B-R-A-R-Y dot O-R-G. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. Thanks for listening all the way to the end of the episode. In our next episode, we'll be talking to Dr. Diane Logwood, Assistant Professor of Women's and Gender Studies at Eastern Michigan University, about her experience growing up in Ypsilanti, specifically about her family's move in the 1980s from the integrated Willow Run neighborhood to Southern Ypsilanti Township, where hers was one of the only Black families in her neighborhood. If you don't want to miss it or other future episodes, You can always subscribe to Ipsy Stories on Spotify or wherever you find your podcasts. And be sure to tell your friends and neighbors about us too. Bye now.